Hey guys, welcome to the Awakening Report. Guess what? I'm taking your questions. Really excited about that. Always enjoy it. If you want to put a question in, what you need to do is log on to YouTube and just join this the show and uh, put a question in the chat. It helps me if you put a cue in front of it. That way I know that you're asking a question and not just yakking with the people in the chat room. So without further ado, I would like to get started. We have a question coming in from Study Jesus for Eternal Life. Yehovah asks, uh, just what are we all meant to do when we're unable to buy and sell? How are we uh, all going to survive? Shouldn't the churches start gardens and bartering? I'm concerned about the mark of the beast. Well, I think it's uh, okay to be concerned about the mark of the beast. We we do know that it's coming. Here's what we don't know. We don't know when it's coming. What we have learned from the book of Revelation is that if you don't have the mark of the beast, either on your right hand or your forehead, then you will not be able to buy and sell. Now, my personal perspective on that, which I detail at length in Corrupting the Image, is that it will be a genetic transformation of the person. And so as you go through this, undergo this genetic transformation, there will be a mark that is left on your right hand or on your forehead. I don't think that you're going to get some kind of a barcode or something put up there. But as you you go through this transformation, that will be the visible uh, proof of purchase, if you will, that you have undergone this uh, transformation. Now, is it good to have a garden? Should churches start gardens? Well, you know, maybe. Although I think you, um, you know, I think we always have to keep in mind that the end of the world is the end of the world for a reason. And you know what? We may not survive. In fact, the Bible says that there's going to be a lot of martyrs. When you look in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14, there are going to be a lot of people that do not make it. Uh, John says, who are all these people? He's speaking to the angel. And he says, these are all the people that came out of the great tribulation. And he saw millions and millions of people. And then we're told in Revelation chapter 20, that people are going to be beheaded for their faith. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, when the dragon, Satan, is cast out of the heavenly sphere, the heavenly realm, he's cast down to earth, he will no longer be able to go back into that realm. And because he knows that his time is short, he will go out and he will persecute those who have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments. So it's going to be a very ugly time. And I don't think that any of us has a guarantee that we're going to make it through. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just lay down and, and wait for people to kill us. Certainly, there's going to be an incredible time of fighting. There's going to be a time of just basic survival. But we're not guaranteed that we're going to make it. And I think we just need to come to grips with that and have peace with that. Now, again, please don't hear me wrong. All right, I'm not saying we just lie down and die. I'm not saying that we should not take precautions. However, I'm not quite convinced that having your your uh, weekend getaway, having your, your bug out bag, your, um, um, you know, your bomb shelter, whatever it may be, uh, and a bunch of food that you're going to make it through this thing. We know that it's going to be a terrible time on planet Earth. But also, it's going to be a time where God is going to be uh, active. He's going to be working. He's going to be using us to minister to others. So there is the mindset that I'm going to hunker down in my bunker and no one's going to get to me and I'm going to have my guns. And if people try to steal my rice, and beans, then I'm going to shoot them. Well, that is one perspective. That's one way to go about it. On the other hand, maybe it'll be a time where we're supposed to share and we are supposed to help others in need. And we might just discover that our earthly weapons 
don't go as far as we thought they were going to. Remember that crazy things are going to happen. We know that in Revelation chapter 9, we're going to have this huge explosion of these chimeric creatures that are going to be coming out of the abyss. Uh, they look like the ancient manticore. I trace it back all the way to the ancient god Nergal or Pabelsag. And it is this horse-like creature that has wings, had a scorpion's tail. And there's going to be 200 million of those things that will be out and about. So again, we're not guaranteed that we're going to make it through. So what I would suggest, first of all, is that your relationship with Jesus Christ is paramount, that you have asked him to be your Lord and Savior. You have asked him to forgive you of your sins and that you've pledged your life to him to live for him or to die for him. That is what we're called to do. We're called to take up our cross daily and how it's going to look like in those last you know, seven or three and a half years, we don't know entirely. We have kind of a composite picture from the scriptures, but we'll have to wait and see. Just, you know, you know, none of us really wants to go through that, but uh, the time does look like it's coming. And so let's make sure that we're ready spiritually. And if we are ready for ready spiritually, then I think we'll make it uh, whatever the outcome. And keep in mind, the Antichrist or the beast is going to be hunting down people. He's going to be hunting down those who have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments. So if you are a follower, a zealous, committed follower of Yeshua, there is a target on your head. And whether you have a gun to defend yourself, you have some extra food to defend yourself, it may, it may uh, push off the inevitable for a week a month, six months, I don't know. But eventually, either you're going to be in God's hands or the Antichrist will get you. And you know what? If you do, you get a crown of life. If that's what happens, you're guaranteed a crown of life. So death is not the worst thing that can happen to the believer. Thank you for that question. Uh, you have another question? We'll go ahead and take that. Uh, isn't it very important to get baptized? John 3, 5 says so. We should all tell our family and friends about being born again. May our Father bless you, Doug. Thank you. Uh, I completely agree. And baptism is definitely something that is, is commanded. We are told, the Lord Jesus told us to baptize and make disciples. So if you have not been baptized, you should be. Uh, if you have and you want to then share the message, share the message. That is what we are called to do. We're to share the message of the kingdom of God. And I think we always have to go back to that basic message. So I'm the pastor of a Messianic congregation. So that means that we keep the Sabbath. We believe in eating uh, clean animals as opposed to unclean animals. We also keep the feasts. And those are all wonderful. And we all have a very strong conviction about those things. But I am quick to remind myself and our congregants that those are just part of our lifestyle. Meeting on Sabbath is just what you do. Uh, you know, the early disciples weren't all talking about, hey, we meet on Sabbath. No, they, they just did it. And they're like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, of course you meet on Sabbath. I mean, I don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? That's what we do, right? And, and so what happens is sometimes these new discoveries become the main thing, but they shouldn't be the main thing. We're simply getting back to the basic standard. And what the disciples were doing, who already had the basic standard, is they were taking the good news of the kingdom and they were sharing that with others. And so that's what we want to do. You know, yes, I, I firmly believe in the Sabbath and I would encourage people to keep the Sabbath, but that's not my main message. I would encourage people to eat clean animals as opposed to unclean animals, but that's not my main message. And the feasts are wonderful. I love them. And I would encourage people, celebrate these. You'll really enjoy them. You'll discover so much more about God. But that's not my main message. My main message is the kingdom of God 
and that people who have been excluded from it can be part of it. Now, once you come into the kingdom, then you'll learn about the Sabbath, and you'll learn about eating clean, and you'll learn about the feasts, among other things. But, but those things in and of themselves are not the main message. The main message is that we have been excluded from a relationship from God, and now we can be brought in by the blood of Christ. That is incredibly good news that we have, that Jesus died for our sins and he has risen again so that we can be part of his kingdom. That's good news. And so for people that are just now hearing this and receiving this message, then we want to encourage them to be baptized as an act of obedience, as an act of faith and a demonstration of the faith that they now have and are walking in, we want to encourage baptism for the new believer. Thanks for the great question. All right, this is from Alexander. Alexander Stone says, when did Satan fall and why? Was it due to him leading Adam and Eve astray or was it due to an unknown incident? All right. Uh, thank you for that question. I have just finished uh, writing a book, still in the draft form, but it's coming soon, Corrupting the Image 2, and I am dealing with that question in great detail, I'll have you know. Uh, but let me just take you to a few texts that we can take a look at right now. So we're going to go back to Ezekiel chapter 28. All right. So Ezekiel 28. And uh, let me make this a little bigger for you guys. So he says, Son of man, take up, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord King, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you're a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. All right, so this whole passage, in fact, as we continue looking at this passage uh, and kind of chapter verse 12 is where it gets the, uh, a little more poignant. It says, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection. All right, so this phrase right here, the king of Tyre, uh, I, you know, until I just did my research, um, I was concerned, uh, perplexed a little bit about who is this king of Tyre. So I just started digging into it deeply and what I discovered is that the king of Tyre is an epithet, which means a title for Satan. Now, let me explain because there's a lot of details and I don't want to overwhelm you here, but I just want to go through them methodically. So the, the king of Tyre was known as the king of the city. That was a title that was used for their local god. In Phoenician, that it was Melkart. Okay, so uh, Melek Karat means the king of the city. And that was an epithet for their local god. Now, there was a bilingual inscription that was found in Malta, in Phoenician and in Greek. So on, on the Phoenician side, it said Melkart. And on the Greek side, it said Heracles, which is Greek for Hercules. All right, so you, we've all heard of Hercules, I think. Hercules is this dying and rising God. He was known as the hero, right? Of course, that's what we think of when we think of Her uh, Hercules, right? He's strong, he's powerful. He does these amazing, uh, you know, has these adventures and he has to go on these quests to do these different things. He is the prototype, if you will, of the hero. Well, uh, Heracles, of course, is coming from Melkart, which is the king of the city. And the king of the city was not referring to an earthly king, but it was referring to this God. Now, this God, Melkart, was also a God of death. He uh, accepted and encouraged um, child sacrifices uh, where they would burn them alive. Terrible, terrible practice. That was then exported to Carthage. And there's all kinds of evidence and remains in, uh, in Carthage of this terrible practice. Now, if we keep backing up, we discover that this, uh, this tradition of Melkart 
actually goes back to the ancient god Ninurta from Sumer, uh, from uh, the Akkadian uh, culture. And so in Akkadian, uh, Ninurta means king of the earth or lord of the earth. What's interesting about that is I think almost all scholars are agreed that Ninurta is the actual name behind the biblical Nimrod. Kind of interesting. And Nimrod is in Hebrew, it means let's rebel. Now, no parent is going to name their kid let's rebel. I mean, that's the last thing you want your kid to do. You know, clean your room. No, clean your room. No. Why don't you listen to me? Because you named me let's rebel, right? I mean, no parent is going to name their son let's rebel. So, so Nimrod is a deliberate distortion on the part of the Bible of this ancient god Ninurta. And what we discover is that Ninurta was the son of Enlil. Enlil is the biblical Halel. Let's take a look at that because that is in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. So this is the passage right here that we want to take a look at. Now, when we take a look at this in the Hebrew, what we discover is that the word Lucifer is not there in the text. So it says, So this word right here, see if I can just isolate that one. So there is Helel. Helel is the biblical equivalent of the Akkadian Elil, which in Sumerian was Enlil. And it turns out that we have all kinds of evidence regarding who was Enlil. And it turns out that Enlil and Melkart that we discovered in Ezekiel 28 are one and the same person. All right. So what that does is it tells us quite a bit about this character that we're looking at. So let's go back to, uh, well, actually, let's stay while we're here in Isaiah. It says how you have, you have been cut down to the ground, you weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. All right, so we just get a, a, an impression of who he is. Let's go back now to Ezekiel 28, because Ezekiel 28 really gives us some wonderful details of Satan's creation and also uh, his fall. So we're taking up a lamentation for Melkart, which is Satan, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. There's only six words there in the Hebrew that tell us all about who he was. Look, he was the seal of perfection. The seal of perfection. Think about that for a second. Nobody was more perfect. Of course, if you're perfect, you can't be more perfect and you can't be less perfect. But he was the seal of perfection. So all the things that God created, Satan was the capstone. He was the ultimate symbol, the ultimate representation of what was perfect. If he, if he were going to be a, a yardstick or a meter stick, he would be the standard. He was the standard of perfection. That's who he is. And then we see that he's full of wisdom. He's not like halfway full of wisdom, but he's completely full of wisdom. That means he's not lacking wisdom. That means that Satan is one smart dude and perfect in beauty, right? So he's not just a little bit beautiful. He's not just you know, three quarters beautiful. He's 100% beautiful, perfect in beauty. These are staggering to consider. And yet God created him. Notice it says that you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, Diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sar sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. I'm going to stop there for a second. Now, what is, is significant to understand in this text 
is that all these stones, if we look at the Septuagint of this text, we discover that they um, they actually have 12 stones, whereas the, the uh, Hebrew here has only nine. And what that suggests is that Satan was a type of priest. He was a high priest. And uh, what is the job of a high priest? Well, a high priest is to intercede. He's to uh, educate God's creatures. He is to communicate the will of God. He becomes like a, a not only a high priest, but also like a prime minister, if you will. In fact, we're going to see that as we continue on in this text. We're going to see some other things. So we have all that. And it says all these were created, were prepared for you on the day you were created. The day you were created. So there was a day when Satan was created. If we go to Psalm 148, then we find this moment when God created. And how, we're going to see how he created Satan and all the other angels. So praise the Lord, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you stars of light, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. So how are they created? He commanded, right? He commanded and they were created. Well, we know this is certainly true of the sun and the moon, right? God says in Genesis, let there be a greater light and a lesser light and the stars, but it also would include the angels that God commanded and they came into being, which is perfectly in line with what we see there in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 28, that God commanded and he was created on a day. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I established you. You were the on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. So he is an anointed cherub. We find some other cherubim uh, in Ezekiel chapter one. There are these very fiery beings. Some of them are below the throne of God. And they appear to be the same type of creature as the sapphire or the uh, the the uh, that we find in Isaiah chapter six, right? So there in Isaiah chapter six, the the seraphim, the seraphim, which means burning ones, okay, burning ones. Now the difference is in Isaiah six, they have six wings, and in, uh, in Ezekiel they have. Four wings. I'm still trying to figure out how to reconcile that. Maybe they're almost the same kind of creature. I don't know. But they're very, very similar in what they do. In fact, when we go to Revelation chapter 4, we're going to say see these same creatures that are saying holy, 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 just like here in Isaiah chapter 6. So these, uh, these beings, uh, they have wings. They're covering their face. They're in God's presence. They're saying... Kadosh, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So all of this is happening. All this is happening. And Satan is one of those beings. He is of, of this group. And it says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So he was good to go. God did not make him substandard. He was absolutely perfect in every way. And then this avlata, this iniquity, was found in him. And I believe that we have the answer right here. The trouble is that our English translation perhaps doesn't capture all of the nuances that are happening right here. So if we take a look in Hebrew, it says, Beirov rechulatcha. All right, so rechulatcha has a couple different meanings. It can mean to come and to go and to trade. All right, that's the basic idea, to exchange something. But the same root in Hebrew, which is rachil, means to slander. And so I would suggest, and I, I deal with, with all this, I bring all of the 
linguistic evidence in my book to make the suggestion that it's not by the abundance of your trading. Because what, what is Satan going to trade with other people? I mean, what is he going to, you know, <laughs> the latest angel phone or something? I mean, there there is no such thing, right? He He's going to be slandering by the abundance of your slandering. And I think it fits so much better. It fits better. It's also related to the word devil. Uh, the word devil, diavolos, means to slander. So there's so many different parallels that we find uh, for what he did. And this would explain what was his big offense. He slandered God, and, and it was abundance of slandering. It wasn't just like a one-time deal, but he slandered, and he slandered, and then he slandered some more. And so because of that, he became filled with violence within and sinned, and so then God cast him as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. God destroyed him. He says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. And notice here, you defiled your sanctuaries. What sanctuaries? Well, the sanctuary that he was supposed to watch over was the Garden of Eden. A, a garden is a gan in Hebrew, and it's supposed to be an enclosed, protected space. He was supposed to protect that. How do we know that? Because God says that you were in Eden, right? You were in Eden, a garden of God. So this is the sanctuary that he's supposed to take care of. But instead of that, he defiled it. And he defiled it by the iniquity of his slandering. I would suggest it's not trading, but slandering. Again, they're the same root, same root word for trading and slandering uh, here in the text. And so this is the basic history of Satan. Now, as to when that happens, part of it depends on how you take a look at Genesis. Some people are very convinced by the gap theory that there were eons and eons of time before Genesis 1-2, and that there's a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and then God recreated the earth. I do not hold that opinion. I, I think that uh, it was created in six literal days, and that all of Satan's history can easily be fit into that basic timeline. But again, you'll have to uh, go through the book. I don't have time to go into all of that detail right now. But that is the basic uh, scenario that we have for the creation of Adam. Now, or creation of Satan, excuse me. Still, why did he do it? Here's what I would suggest. He did not want to serve anybody. He wanted everyone to serve him. That would explain his slander, right? Why would he slander? Why would he think people should serve him? Well, what did God say about him? What was he like? He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And so then he says, uh, by the abundance of your slandering or profaning, it says your heart was lifted up because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So Satan began to believe that all these gifts that God had given him, all these, these attributes that were freely given, he did nothing to earn these. These were a gift from God. But he said, you know what? I really am amazing. I am all this. I'm incredible. And the idea that I should have to serve and protect others, Adam and Eve, namely, in the Garden of Eden, was too much. And that's when he said, no, I'm, I don't want to do that. I am the greatest. I'm the greatest. His heart was lifted up and he thought everybody should serve him. And that's when he said that he would be like the Most High and he would set his throne above uh, God's throne, etc. So it was, it was, in my opinion, in response to the task that God had given him. When we think about this, uh, we, we see a number of, of parallels in Scripture. First of all, we see 
Abraham and his servant, uh, Eliezer of Damascus. So before Abraham becomes Abraham, and he's just Abram, and he doesn't have any children, he says that says to God in Genesis 15, he says, you know, hey, look, uh, Eliezer is going to become my heir. I don't have one. So he's going to inherit everything after I die. It's all his. And then we also see when he goes to get a bride for his son, Isaac, that he was in charge of everything. He was in charge of everything. He was ruler over everything, Eliezer was. And all of that was going to go to, to Isaac. It's an incredible parallel. We have another one where Joseph uh, finds himself in the court of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, okay, you know what? We're going to have a famine. I'm going to put you in charge. And besides this throne, you're the dude. You're in charge. Only this throne will set me above you. I'm Pharaoh. But besides that, you're the prime minister. Go for it. You're in charge. And that's what Satan had. Satan had control of everything. He was the go-to person. He was the one that was sort of running the universe, if you will. And because God had given it to him, he did nothing to earn it. But the one thing that God requires of all his servants is that we would be servants. We would serve each other. We would serve someone lesser than ourselves. To serve someone greater, well... That's good, but that's not hard. That You know, like, yeah, I work for the greatest guy in the world. I mean, that's not hard to do. But when we serve somebody lesser than ourselves, that requires sacrifice. That requires humility. And guess what? That is what Jesus did. The one thing that Satan was unwilling to do, Jesus was willing to do. And he laid down his life to show what true love looks like. So ultimately, Satan rejected the kingdom of love, and he replaced it with a kingdom of self where he's at the top and everybody serves him, right? He's the king of the hill. That's the idea. So thanks for asking that good question. <laughs> There's more to say on that, but I'm going to have to stop there for now. But uh, I do appreciate that. All right. This is from Ed Doss. Since faith also exists within time and space, can it be explained in terms of physics or is it just ethereal? Oh, my. Wow. Um, well, so it's interesting when we start looking at quantum physics that quantum physics tells us that what I perceive about the world in some way helps to bring it to pass. Now, let's be clear. God is the creator, right? So he, let's say that God made the sandbox, okay? But I get to play in the sandbox. And what I can imagine in the sandbox can actually come to pass. Now, it would require me to take my hands and to start building things. We see that. And yet, just using it as an analogy, what I perceive about the world is actually part of the creative process. It's kind of mind-blowing. And it was actually John A. Wheeler who set up a, a test for this, and uh, it's called, uh, I think it's called the Wheeler Test. Um, and it was a way to discover what influence we, we the observer, have on the photons that are being passed through these series of, of uh, tests. And what's crazy is that when a person is observing the photons that are passing through like a double slit, okay, so... Uh, imagine you've got a, um, I'm just looking for a decent piece of paper. Okay. So you got two slits here, right? You got two openings, two cuts, and it lets light pass through it. So when the light passes through, what happens is something really weird, right? So when somebody is watching, the light that's traveling through looks like, um, it looks like a wave. When I'm not watching, when nobody's watching, then it acts like a particle. And this has confounded physicists for a very long time. But it's been proven through the Wheeler experiment and other things that the 
that it that it's not just um, instrumentation or something, but it actually has to do with the observer being part of that process. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's out there. Maybe it's Wheeler as well, where he calls it a participatory universe. Our universe is a participatory universe. And the idea there is that we as observers have a role to play. Now, again, God made everything. We, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that we made it. He made it, but he made it in such a way that my observation of it has an impact on it. So when it comes to faith, uh, I, I don't know that space and time has any particular bearing on that, but I, I do know that when we start digging into quantum physics, that we find some very analogous type language to what we find in the Bible. So that being part of or an observer to something, right? Remember when Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be. Think about Peter. He's walking on the water, right? He says, Lord, if it's you, call me out. Yeah, come on, right? So Peter gets out of the boat. Now, by whose power was he walking on, on the water? Was it his own power? Of course not. It was God's power. Clearly 100% God's power that he could walk on the water. But if it was 100% God's power, why did he sink? Well, he sank because he stopped believing, which is interesting, right? So that tells us that it's a participatory universe, that our participation, our observation of this event, and the observation actually has to be here before, before it happens. So you have to you have to see it by faith. You have to see yourself walking on the water before you actually walk on the water. We, we have so many examples of this where the Levites are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they're told when it's when the Jordan is at the high water mark, he says, put your foot in the water and then it will part. Right? They're not told, okay, wait, wait a second, let me stop the waters and you guys can pass through. No, they have to believe by faith that the waters are going to stop and so they put their foot in and the waters part. There's example after example of where we are called to be participants in God's universe. And so when it comes to faith, our participation in that faith event is incredibly important. I can't explain it all because quantum physics in itself is hard enough, but to understand faith completely... That, that's very challenging. But we, we do see echoes and glimpses and shadows of these spiritual ideas in quantum physics and uh, some of the other sciences as well. So thank you, Ed, for that good question. All right. So this is from Nancy Grogan. The COVID vaccine has DNA from a 14-week white male aborted fetus. It's the AstraZeneca brand. The cells have been cloned over and over again to produce this. Do you think this could change our DNA? I'm not convinced that this will change our DNA yet. Now, and so I don't think that any COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. First of all, we're told, it says in Revelation 14, very clearly, if anyone takes the mark, worships the beast, and worships the image of the beast, then he's done for. So. Until you're forced to worship something, uh, I think you're safe. However, I do think that these technologies that we have of changing uh, DNA, and I, I have not studied the COVID vaccine deeply enough to know to what extent it has the ability to change our DNA. From what I've heard, it does not change our DNA. It simply what is in this thing has been genetically modified, but I don't believe that it has any potential to change my DNA or to change your DNA. So um, I would encourage uh, everybody to not panic. I don't believe this is the mark of the beast, but it could be one, just one more stepping stone to get us there. 
Okay, so I don't think this is it, but we are starting to see some echoes, right, of of what could be coming. So I doubt, strongly, strongly doubt that this is uh, the mark of the beast. But um, but keep your eyes open because uh, from what we see in our technology, it does look like we are uh, going that that direction. Thank you. All right. This is from uh, Fari. Uh, greetings, Dr. Shalom. Can you give an understanding on 1 Timothy 4.3, Colossians 2.14, uh, ordinances, Sabbaths, food and clean, etc.? Absolutely. So glad you asked that. So 1 Timothy 4. Let's go to 1 Timothy 4. Let me bring that up. So you guys can see it as well. All right. So there it is. All right. So uh, this is a passage that has been used to say, look, it's okay to eat uh, pork. And if anybody tells you that it's not, then that is a doctrine of demons. So let's look. The Spirit expressly says in latter times that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared, with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right, so that is a key passage, but the answer is incredibly simple. And I want you to focus in here on foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Okay, so Doctrines of demons, demons are going to say you cannot eat foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. You cannot eat foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. That's super important. So let's go hold that thought. Leviticus 11, all right? Foods, right? Foods that God created. This is important. So God says, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, among the animals whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat, okay? So that is really the, cl the clue here. And of course, we have the things you're not supposed to eat, the rock hyrax, the hare, right? Uh, the swine, okay? So there's your pig, right? So these and other things, camels and, and all that other kind of stuff, buzzards, you're not supposed to eat all that stuff, right? So you're not supposed to eat those, so, because what he says here, just kind of a, a little um, summary, this is the law of the animals and birds and every living thing that moves in the waters, da, 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 to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. All right, so the word ochel in Hebrew is food. To eat is lechol, uh, le okay? So <laughs> they're the same word, to eat, food, food, eat, right? They're the same thing. They are the exact same thing. So when God says these you can eat, that means that these are food. And when he says these you cannot eat, that means that these are not food. All right. So because uh, pig is very popular in America, uh, among other things, but you know, you're not supposed to eat rats either, right? We're not supposed to eat rats. So going back to the original text here, the doctrine of demons would be to abstain from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So the question is, is pork, etc., are these things food? Are they considered as things to eat that God created to be received with thanksgiving? Well, the answer is no. It's very, very simple. He did not create pork, etc., to be food to be received with thanksgiving. So the whole notion that um, telling people you're not supposed to eat pork and shrimp and all that is somehow a doctrine of demons, which I've heard said many, many times, is just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. God tells us what is food. He tells us what is not food. So that is the easiest way to understand that, uh, in my opinion. Now, the second part of your question is Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14. So 
here we have, uh, Paul is telling us that um, he says, in you being dead in your trespasses is an uncircumcision of your flesh. He's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, there's a lot of people that suggest that the Ten Commandments, that God's commandments, his Torah, were nailed to the cross. I mean, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard. All right, let's let's think logically through this for a second. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. See, there it is. And sin is lawlessness. Okay, so sin is lawlessness. The Greek word anomia, which is Torahlessness. So Torah, instructions, the commandments, mitzvot. So if you are lawless, you're not keeping the commandments. It means that you're committing sin. So think about it. Did God get rid of his commandments? No. Because he's saying sin is lawlessness. Of course, we also know in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, he says, I'll start in verse uh, 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away, or one jot or tittle will by no means pass away till the, all the law is fulfilled. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to do away with the commandments, not at all. Did he do that? Paul tells us in Romans 3.31. Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. All right, so let's back to Colossians chapter 2. So what was this handwriting that was against us? Well, who's Paul talking to? You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. First of all, he's talking to pagans because pagans are uncircumcised. All the Jews are circumcised, of course. He's talking to pagans. So pagans are not going to give up the Torah. You know why? Because they weren't even keeping the Torah. You can't give up something you weren't doing in the first place. So what was it that was against us? What was this handwriting of requirements that was against us? The answer is very cool. In Jeremiah chapter 3, and uh, so, so God is speaking here through the mouth of the prophet. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? So the answer is no. In fact, we know this very clearly because in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife. So this may be a shock to some people, but God and Israel got divorced. All right, so we're going back to Jeremiah chapter 3. So again, if a man divorces his wife, etc., he says, but you played the harlot with many lovers yet return to me. Now that's interesting. So God is acknowledging what is in Deuteronomy 24, that a man cannot take back his wife because she's been with the, all these other lovers. He says, but, but come back. Now notice here in verse eight, he says, then I saw that for all the causes uh, for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. So he says that concerning the house of Israel, that he divorced her. Yet her treacherous sister Judah, the house of Judah, 
did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. And he says that Judah has not turned to me and that backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous to Judah. So you've got the house of Israel, house of Judah, the house of Israel. God says, it's over. I'm no longer your husband. This is in Hosea, by the way, Hosea chapter one and chapter two. Hosea chapter one and chapter two, God makes a very, very clear distinction. He says, I will no longer have mercy in the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy in the house of Judah. So we, God makes a very plain distinction between these two houses. And he says, lo ami, for you're not my people. He's talking to the house of Israel because he said he'll have mercy on Judah, but not Israel. So lo ami, you're not my people and I will not be your God. And this theme continues in chapter two. Bring charges against your mother, bring charges for she's not my wife. So this tells us that Israel and God got married. Uh, the marriage went south pretty quickly, not because God was unrighteous, but because Israel was unrighteous. And so God divorced Israel. God divorced Israel. And, but then he's saying, but come back to me. Come back to me. So the handwriting that was against us, that was contrary to us, that Paul is talking about in Colossians 2.14, is the certificate of divorce that said you cannot come back. It was the certificate of divorce that said you cannot come back into fellowship, into relationship with God because this divorce certificate says that you've been unfaithful. And because you've been unfaithful, you can't come back. That is the handwriting that was against us. And so he took that out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Paul goes on to say in Revelation 7 that the same thing. Let me just take you there because it, it's, you just got to see this. So brethren, I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So not the Torah, not God's commandments, but the law of her husband. That is the, the, the Brit, the, the marriage contract she released from the marriage contract if he dies so then while if her husband lives she marries another man she'll be called an adulteress guess what god called israel an adulteress but if her husband dies she's free from that law free from the law of the husband or from the marriage contract so that she's no adulteress though she's married another man so if, if the husband dies she's free my brethren, you have also become dead to the law, the law of the husband through the body of Christ, because he was nailed to the cross, that you may be married to another, to who? To him who was raised from the dead. Wow. So Jesus, the husband, died and the divorce certificate was nailed to the cross, but then Jesus rose again. And now he's a new husband for a new wife. What a beautiful picture. I hope that puts a little clarity in that there for you. I do appreciate that. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Fari, I do have a whole teaching on that. It's called God's Divorce Remarriage. It's on my YouTube channel, God's Divorce and Remarriage. Go ahead and check that out. All right. So I think we got to quite a few of those. Uh, all right. So this is from Andy Ray. Dr. Hemp, I've bumped into the Hebrew Israelites a few times online and would like some help on how to correct their doctrine. Hmm. Uh, I, I wonder if you're referring to the black Israelites. Uh, if, if I understand uh, Hebrew Israelites, there's probably a couple different iterations of that. Um, there, there is the, the black Israel movement suggesting that... Um, that black people in general, Africans, are the real, true uh, Jews. And um, it, it's challenging because I'm, I'm sympathetic to a couple 
of their things that God can have different colors. It doesn't have to be white Caucasian by any means. Uh, we know that Ethiopians are part of the line of David, right? David, Solomon, probably how that happened. Uh, and they're clearly not white or Caucasian. Um, but what, what happens with the black Israelite movement is that they make it, they make themselves the exclusive uh, people that can be Jewish, right? Nobody else. So they would say, no, we and only we are the Jews and those Caucasian Jews in Europe that died in the Holocaust, they don't count. So I have a real problem with that. That is, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's really bad. So if you're talking about, about those people, um, I don't know that I can do it in about three minutes because <laughs> there's, there's a lot to that, sadly. Um, then there's the other flavor, which is the idea that uh, as an Ephraimite, that I am the real Israel. Uh, you know, I sort of a general I here. Um, and um, I, I think we have to understand that there are two sticks. There's two sticks in, in Ezekiel 37. Um, God talks about these two sticks, Israel and Judah. He's going to put them back together. He's going to make the two nations back into one. Right. So I would encourage you to read Ezekiel 37. Um, Hosea chapters one and two in particular. Uh, but uh, how about Isaiah chapter 11 as well? It's about putting these two back together and read Ephesians chapter two. All right. Very good. All right. This is from Diana. Do you think we'll be able to see our pets in heaven? There will be an infinite amount of space in heaven and the GMO pets perhaps can have their soul preserved without a corrupt body. Well, you know, Diana, I don't know. We're not told that animals have any kind of, of uh, eternal soul. We're not told that they don't. But uh, so that's where scripture is silent. And it's usually best if we stay silent. But I will say this, there, there will be animals in heaven. It may not be your exact Fido <laughs> right here on earth, but it, uh, it, it might be a Fido that's just as close. I, I don't know. Um, it is interesting in light of the whole idea of cloning pets. Uh, you'd think, well, certainly God could do that, right? And I get it. I, I love animals as well. I had a lot of animals when I was younger and uh, we have a bunny now and, you know, she's just a cute little thing. And I understand how a person can truly love an animal. And I think animals actually have a lot to say. They don't speak our language. We don't speak their language, but I do believe they have a mode of communication. I, I know they do. I mean, dogs can talk, right? They can't use words like we articulate, but they, they, they speak through other, other means, through body language, through their tail, uh, you know, through the, their puppy dog eyes, right? Uh, through the way that they whimper or how they are, uh, how they are, are barking or something. Uh, they are definitely communicating. So animals are wonderful. And I think that they are just a beautiful part of God's creation. And I believe that God wants us to enjoy animals now and in the age to come. So I cannot tell you if your exact dog or bat, pet is going to be resurrected. I don't know that. But I do know that there will be many, many animals in heaven. And I think the good and proper relationship that God wanted us to have with the animals will be restored. So I'm looking forward to that. So I would, I would just say, uh, take hope, okay? Uh, take heart here, have courage that, that, you know, again, whether it's your specific animal or one that's very close, you're going to love the animals when you get to meet them in heaven. And um, it, it's going to be really a wonderful relationship. All right. And we've got about time for one more. All right. I'm going to do what maybe looks like a, uh, a quick question. Uh, why did Satan enter into Judas after Jesus handed him the bread that he had dipped? Well, I think Satan understood that he had an opportunity to kill Jesus. And he had been sort of living with this prophecy of doom over his head that the seed of the woman would come and would crush his head. He'd been living with that for thousands of years. And so here's Jesus, right? Remember, Satan takes Satan, Satan takes Jesus out. 
and says, okay, well, let's see if you're really the son of God. Uh, turn that stone into bread. Jesus is like, well, uh, no, a man should live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, well, since you're the son of God, right? So he keeps saying, since you're the son of God. So he's acknowledging you're the son of God. Okay, let's see what you can do. He takes him up on onto the pinnacle of the temple and he says, and he quotes from uh, Psalm 97. I think it is 97. Uh, you know, since you're the son of God, cast yourself down and your God's angels will will uh, catch you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. That was a messianic psalm. And uh, there's some language in there that that uh, is very suggestive. And I think Satan was like, OK, you're the, you're the Messiah. Great. This one says that here's what you're supposed to do. So prove it. And of course, Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord. Right. And then he he offers him the entire kingdom. So I think Satan is, is firmly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and he sees an opportunity that he can kill the Messiah without having to go to war, without having to fight in a more uh, military type way. And so he seizes on this opportunity because when you want a job done right, you do it yourself, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the bottom line. And so Satan did not leave this. He did not entrust this most sensitive of issues to any of his underlings, but he took it himself. And so he entered into Judas because he needed a human operator, an agent uh, to be the one that he would work through. And so that is why I think Satan personally took that upon himself. Uh, that's in my new book, by the way. <laughs> so uh, I hope you guys can get that when it comes out. It should be coming out in a couple months, working hard on it. I want you to know, I just want to make sure that it's really great doing all the editing I can. So thanks so much. Well, guys, we are out of time. This has been wonderful. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to become a sponsor, you can go to patreon.com forward slash dog and you can give as little as $2 a month or as much as you want. But thank you. I do appreciate it. God bless you. 